Welcome to Laugh Your Cry Out, the podcast that features unfiltered conversations about our collective mental health and where we make it easy to talk about the hard stuff. Nothing is off limits. After listening, you'll walk away smiling about the plight of being human and maybe even learn a bit about yourself. I'm your host, Joey Dumont. Let's dive into today's episode. So we are now on camera, Professor. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and thank you again for, you know, first of all, being my friend. It's been wonderful knowing you the last couple of years. And uh, second, I think I can say with a lot of confidence, this is the first time I've ever assigned a professor reading <laughs> before yeah. a chat. So, and, and also let me just throw out a mea culpa on my blind spot there. So I was pretty captivated by a lot of Andy Norman's book, his mental immunity book, no. specific to some of the topics I want to talk about today, which is our ideology is dangerous. Yeah. I did, however, this is my apology. I, I guess I glossed over a lot of his poo-pooing of religion <laughs> because I just, for me, maybe it's the fact that I'm a recovering Catholic and I get a kick out of anybody kind of poking holes in religion. But as you know, I hold religions in general to high esteem based on the metaphorical truths. And I love all of them for that reason. So let me just say, I'm sorry there. And we can avoid any of his, you know, pontificating <laughs> on religion. I think that there's just other pieces to it specific to the ideology discussion, because as we've talked about, even on Joe Jaffe's show, yeah. you know, over the, the years, there's so much division in our culture today. Yeah. And we don't talk anymore. We just try to own <laughs> the other yeah. side, wherever yeah. it lies. And so the reason I thought mental immunity, Andy Norman's book would be applicable is that it gave me some framework none of which I think is unique to you as a philosopher, mm -hmm. right? right? I just, right. for me, it was like, wow, it was really cool. And then because he's a philosopher at Carnegie Mellon and a pretty renowned um, thinker, I wanted to bring the biggest thinker I know in the space into this discussion. And so allow me to brag a sec about your storied past. So you were a Moorhead scholar at University of North Carolina. You hold a double PhD in philosophy from Yale. You are a tenured professor at Notre Dame, and you are the author of, I think, 31 books? Yeah, so far. And uh, <laughs> well, actually, a 32nd is finished, but it's not out yet. Okay. So uh, we got and, something and, to wait for. That's What is the name of your 32nd book? <laughs> the Wisdom Collector. There we go. Perfect. All right. So, and many of these are national bestsellers. Uh, this one being one of them, which we can get into a little bit later, oh, yeah. uh, because I really enjoyed if Harry Potter ran General Motors, which was a uh, was kind of a offspring of if Aristotle ran. Yeah, if Aristotle ran General Motors, if Harry Potter ran General Electric. Electric, sorry. <laughs> if Harry Potter ran General Electric, I got the two confused. Th those I've read them both, so I, I kind of conflated those two. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that's kind of the idea behind it, is that I wanted to inject ethics into this discussion at some level too. And you did a really good job specifically in this book for lay people in framing it around Harry Potter's ethics and how he kind of dealt with Hogwarts and all that neat stuff. So thank you, sir. Thanks for yeah, being here. Yeah, man, you bet. And that book you just held up, uh, If Harry Potter Ran General Electric, that was like a lot of my books, a completely unexpected project. Did I ever tell you about how that originated? 
Uh, possibly, but go ahead. It'd be good. good a, a young professor audience. of philosophy wrote me a letter, a guy I didn't know. And he said, look, I'm going to do a book called Harry Potter and Philosophy, a collection of essays from philosophers about the philosophical themes in the Harry Potter stories. If you would be willing to write one, he said to me, you would be the lead essay in the book. Um, and I said, well, I don't have little kids. I haven't read the Potter stories. And so I don't plan to because they're kind of big books. And I'm sort of busy. <laughs> he, said, he said, hey, look, they're not just for kids. They're for everybody. And so this guy started calling me or emailing me every other day, asking me to consider doing it. He got his favorite professor, who was one of my graduate students, to start lobbying me every other day. And between these two guys, they were driving me crazy. So I said, all right, listen, if you guys <laughs> would just shut up, I'll go read the first Harry Potter book. Yeah. And if I like it, I'll write something. If I don't, I won't. Is that a deal? And you guys just quit uh, getting to me about this. You know, okay, okay. I read the first book, Joey. I ended up reading the first four or five books in the series with, at that time out. I ended up reading every one of them six times through, cover to cover. Wow. I was stunned that J.K. Rowling, a classics major, which people typically don't know, right. she knew ancient philosophy so well and was building her characters around Aristotle's virtues, around the wisdom of the ancients. And people weren't even talking about that. They were just talking about the wands and the crazy magic and all this. And in the stories, none of the problems ever get solved by magic. They get solved by wisdom and virtue. And that was something nobody was seeing. So not only did I write an essay called The Courageous Harry Potter for this guy's book, I couldn't stop. And it ended up being a book I call Harry Potter and the Meaning of Life. And then Doubleday got a hold of it. And they said, oh, look, 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 we've always loved your book, If Aristotle Ran General Motors. Would you do a parallel title for this? Because the editor said, this is the greatest leadership book I've ever come across. And, and people need to know that. So I researched companies at the time. And I found that General Electric had a research facility called the House of Magic. And I said, okay, this is a done deal. <laughs> 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 That's just too now, serendipitous, huh? <clears throat> well, no, that's great. That's great. And so I think that even my cursory love of philosophy, and I, I say that not to try to be self-deprecating. I, I do love philosophy. and I've spent a lot of time reading it, but I'm up here with a scholar. So I want to make sure that I <laughs> regulate that. I think that what I enjoyed, again, about Andy Norman's book, and there's tons in there, but I, what I focused on as far as my notes anywhere or anyway was Charles Peirce which Bertrand Russell is one of my favorite all-time philosophers. And I know he's an atheist, but it, yeah. he's just a, a big thinker. And he said, and I quote, that Charles Peirce was the greatest American thinker ever. And so he actually coined the term pragmatism, yeah. which, you know, as any philosopher, I, I've gone through all the phases. <laughs> you start out as a realist and you go to pragmatist and I got to a Taoist. And, you know, but it, as you kind of go through the machinations of reading, each individual philosopher would capture me in different ways. No. And so the reason I brought this to the table was because what I liked about this is that he talks, Pierce talks about selfish and unaccountable believing plants the seeds of ideology and breeds irreconcilable differences. Yeah, yeah. So can we talk about that specific too? And you can just run with this. I mean, what yeah. I'm trying to figure out on the ideology front is how far back I mean, this is obviously not, this is not new to the human condition. So we've been at odds with one another for centuries. So like with your background, where do you see the, the first stories of ideology that I think ring true for this discussion? And, and are they good? What is the good and then what is the bad? Because to me, yeah. they seem to be more toxic than beneficial. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, it's an interesting thing that you you put it this way historically, uh, Joey, because the oldest story we think we have is the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is from about 2700 BCE. At least that's the setting of the story. We think it was written down not too long after that. And Gilgamesh was actually, we, we believe, a historical figure. And so the Epic of Gilgamesh is, okay, and, and, and think about it like this. Our oldest story, what's it going to be about? It's about a leader abusing his position. Yeah. That in itself sets us up for what's going to play out over centuries. In fact, in preparation for our time together today, I called one of my old friends yesterday. He was one of my best friends in college. He was, uh, he was, he always uh, blew apart categories. He was a hippie fraternity guy. So if you can imagine that, you know, the South in the time fraternity guys, the button up shirts and the, yeah. and the snappy blazers and everything. And he was a bell bottom pants and long hair and beard and Jesus shoes and that kind of thing. You know, uh, uh, I, he now is a pastoring a church equidistant between Harvard and MIT. And he told me when we talked yesterday, he said, I got more PhDs in the building than I've ever been around in my life. (laughs) And so I called him up because I I said, look, his name was Clyde. I said, look, Clyde, why is there so much crazy ideology in the religious world these days? I mean, take people calling themselves evangelicals. He and I would have called ourselves evangelicals in college. And in college, 1970s, Evangelicals were forward-thinking, culturally sensitive, philosophically astute folks. I grew up in a Baptist church that wouldn't let you dance or play music, and as a soul music guitarist, that was bad for my business, so I had to get out of there. But uh, <laughs> with our groups in college, this was the time of the Jesus movement across America, so my friend, his, his hippiness was connected to that, but we were all about art and culture, modern art. We were all about music. We were all, and not just, you know, the music of the time, um, uh, the Woodstock stuff. We were all about, you know, classical music and all. And so, you know, we were quoting Shakespeare. And this was evangelicalism in America in the 70s. You know, we were, okay, what did, what did Foucault mean when he said, evangelicalism now, why has it gone so crazy and so far right and so ideological? in ways that it wasn't then. And he said, you know, he said to me, you know, I think it's just the oldest story in the world. He said, look at the book of Judges in the Old Testament. He said, the the people did what was good in their own eyes. They departed from God. They eventually came back and they departed again and they came back and they departed again. It's this pendulum swing through human history. He said, it's all about control. It's all about power. It's all about importance. It's all about self-esteem and value. It's all about tribe. It's not about yeah. religious truth at all. It's not about the gospel. You know, it's not about, it's about these issues that human beings have struggled with since there were human beings. And, and they do it wrong. You know, I've always loved a Winston Churchill quote. You can always depend on Americans to do the right thing once they've exhausted every other possibility. <laughs> you know, and, and like human history is all of us resisting every other trying Every other possibility, resisting anything good, and then finally making our way out of the morass we've created for ourselves. Right now, we're going through one of those morass times. And I've often had a saying in my life since the 70s, I have said the worse things get, the more of an optimist I become. Yep, that is one of your famous phrases. Yeah, because people can put up with unbelievably bad stuff until things get literally intolerable 
And then it's a wake-up call to a lot of the people who've been sleepwalking through the disaster. You know, it's almost like the zombie movie and every, all the zombies are just kind of moving forward, right? And it's like, what's going to wake everybody up here? It's got to get that bad. One of the philosophers who's almost unreadable, uh, Hegel, had this view of human history, <laughs> thesis, antithesis, higher synthesis. You go from one extreme to the other extreme, and then you find a midpoint that's higher than either of those. He thought of all of human history as having that structure to it. Well, I've always thought that the Hegelian dialectic was a powerful tool. I, I'm with yeah. you on the Hegel front because he's so dark. But I, I think that to me was, that is, we're not, we don't have that framing. No. At all. We don't have any. What kind of framing do we have these days philosophically? There's so None. many people whose lives are just devoid of a conceptual apparatus to help them understand and evaluate what they see or hear around them. Uh, and that's what I see that's so crazy. My friend that I was talking to yesterday, you know, the, he's a Christian minister and the Christian faith is supposed to be about taking care of people and caring for the least among us, uh, the, the, the weakest, the helpless, the outsider, the immigrant, the, uh, the, whatever. And it's like, it's gone in the opposite direction to, to the extent that I know of a local Christian school where the daughter of a pastor is having to hide from her parents that she wears a mask at school. Uh, to prevent the spread oh, of disease or getting disease herself. She's had to hide this from her pastor father. And, you know, how have we gotten That's to this point? Was. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> she can't a, a, totally she can't bizarre, yeah. a totally bizarre spin. Let me, can I read you a couple sentences? Please, please. Uh, Tolstoy, War and Peace, my read of the week, maybe of the month, maybe of the season. I'm on up to page 502 now. So I'm saving you a lot of trouble, right? I'm going to go ahead. And, that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> this is talking about a Russian uh, nobleman, uh, part of the aristocracy. A guy's very wealthy and he's trying to figure out what he's going to do with all his money, what he's going to do with his life. And, and, and so the narrator says here, he stood by the guy named Pierre. The narrator says he suffered from an unlucky faculty common to many men, especially Russians. The faculty of seeing and believing in the possibility of good and truth. And at the same time, seeing too clearly the evil and falsity of life to be capable of taking a serious part in it. Every sphere of activity was, in his eyes, connected with evil and deception. Whatever he tried to be, whatever he took up, evil and falsity drove him back again and cut him off from every field of energy. And meanwhile, he had to live. He had to be occupied. It was too awful to lie under the burden of those insoluble problems of life, and he abandoned himself to the first distraction that offered, simply to forget them. He visited every possible society, drank a great deal, went in for buying pictures, building, and above all, reading. And then there's a long paragraph on how wine became his best friend. Now, this is Tolstoy kind of repeating Pascal. You know, having confronted problems they couldn't solve, human beings turn to gambling and drunkenness and game playing and distraction diversion. The Pascalian concept of diversion. Uh, Entertaining Ourselves to Death was a a title of a book uh, uh, several years ago. And it's almost like we stumbled into the society we have right now because of no guiding frameworks that are uh, both sensitive and non-ideological. To me, ideology is always the taking of an idea and blowing it into an extreme and then using it to uh, capture and control other people. 
It, it, it has to somehow relate to what people care about, or they wouldn't care about the ideology, right? It has to somehow yeah. touch their values that are of emotional importance to them. But then it blows everything up to an extreme, and it departs from any other values or truths and just monomaniacally drives people in a certain direction, usually over the cliff, right? The Pied Piper uh, images yeah. and all the others like that that we've had through through history. So here, Tolstoy in the 1800s is writing about the people who see good, who see truth, but all around them when they try to embody it, when they try to put it in practice, they're pushed back by evil, by falsehood, by ideology. Uh, and this is often, you know, war and peace is about Napoleon fighting the uh, Russians who are fighting this group and another group and, and all these ideologies, which end up being masks for people with big egos like Napoleon. Um, and Gilgamesh. <laughs> yeah, abs right. Absolutely right. You know, Gilgamesh didn't even have time for an ideology. He was so busy being a, a, a jerk, you know, and, uh, but, but that's what's behind every ideology. The narcissist. Um, the, the, the people who it's bloated ego out of control and they want to have control over other people. And so you get your Jim Jones and Guiana, you get your cults, yeah. you get your uh, political movements that aren't for the sake of human flourishing, but are for the sake of the egos who launch those movements. So we're in a time where, you know, in the book that you asked me to read, Andy Norman's book, had a lot of good things to say about this using a metaphor of the immune system, the yeah. human immune system and, and invading uh, viruses, invading ideas. It was a great metaphor. Uh, I, I had to part company with him in a couple of ways that he treats every religion as an ideology. And no, it's when religion gets out of control, it becomes an ideology. It's what I call the double power principle. And you've heard me talk about this before. The more yeah, power right. something has for good, the more it also has for ill or harm. It's up to right. us how we use it. Same thing with any religion or, or philosophy. The pragmatist is the person who tries to use organizations for good only and, and tries to avoid those harmful or ill implications that can come from that same, that same power. Uh, Andy also had a professor's theoretical answers to these questions. Okay. How do you get people out of this? Well, I can imagine him trying to get the Fox News watchers, and sorry to use that as an example, get them to sit down and reason with him and answer his questions. No, no. Um, my, my friend uh, who calls on restaurants in the area here in southeastern North Carolina, uh, he says that certain shows uh, are on the uh, TV set in the bars and restaurants 24-7, and it happens to be Fox News, and yeah. everybody's just mesmerized with this. They don't want to critically analyze what they're hearing, they're more like they're watching a football game rooting for their home team. And, and Andy wants, a, 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 wants to pull these folks away and say, and let's do some creative dialogue, some critical dialogue about this. So it's a great idea. How's it going to happen? Is there an alternative that's more practicable, that's more viable? Well, that's a funny part too, because I shared with you my love of my brother and my respect for him. And I talk about him on my podcast all the time because he's a thinker and a writer and an academic and a law professor and, and a family law attorney. And most of the stuff I study in my free time, I, you know, I read a couple of books a week and Andy's was one. And he said to me one day, he said, you know, you read a lot of white dudes. <laughs> I was like, true. I, I do have some... <clears throat> favorite female writers, but it has recently been skewed male and yep. white and educated. 
And so Andy's purview of the world, specifically as he framed pragmatism and some of the questions that I think are relevant to our chat today, are framed in a way that is of the privilege. So right. people actually have time yeah. sit back and, and pontificate on, hey, what can we do to solve these problems? And as you know, I launched this podcast earlier this year after I wrote my memoir. And my memoir was a big mea culpa about being a douchebag, right? So I thought yeah. it was just one of those things where, and thank you again for all your help there. But the idea there is that, yes, Andy Norman had some really cogent ideas around how we could frame discussions. And I think your point is really powerful because it's how do you do this? How, you know, I had a conversation yesterday with a, a young man who is a vice president of a social group. He is a part of the DNC in Sacramento. He has a master's degree in public policy. He's 29 years old. So he went through college uh, 2013, 14, 15, got his master's degree. He's a progressive, uh, mm-hmm. a very left progressive. And so we had this discussion around I would consider myself a liberal. He's left of me. They have issues. He wanted to abolish the police department. That was his That was his thing. And a lot of the young men and women that I've talked to believe the same thing. And we got into that. And I said, all right, what do you mean abolish? Because, you know, at least you're not poo-pooing around the term, right? You're right. being very specific. And right. I appreciate that. And then we kind of started to pull those pieces apart. And what we realized was that he has, as most left most progressives in this area talk about the police having roots of slavery and oppression and things that go all the way back. And and that's a big narrative on their side. And so what we did is we kind of just said, all right, let's just move that aside for a moment. I'm not saying that our roots have some issues because that's a big discussion that's too meta narrative. That's a, that's a big problem for pretty much every institution in America. So exactly. if you could use that to abolish something, let's just abolish everything, right? Well, yeah. I mean, you could go back to King David having concubines and say, right. well, I can't read the Bible anymore because he had concubines, right? It's like, for me, I'm like, hey, good for you, Dave. I would have done the same thing. But yeah, it's yeah. it's it was one of those things where we weren't that far apart. When I, right. I said, so when you say abolish, you know, what do you mean? There's 18,000 police departments in the country. And there's a million uniformed police officers. So are there bad police departments? Of course. We found that in Ferguson. We found that in some areas in Chicago and Los Angeles and other areas. But the discussion I had with my buddy proved that officers want body cameras. Officers want de-escalation training. They want mental health services. He said that out of the 255,000 calls they got in 2019, they had 137,000 roles. So they actually sent uniformed officers to these places. 247 of them involved use of force. Mm. No one got killed. No one, it was, you know, and he said, Joey, if police aren't perfect, we're the bad guy. And I was like, wow. And so when you see, and you kind of balance these things, then I had this conversation with this very educated, kind young man who I just disagree on that specific phraseology. But he was, when when we started talking, he's like, we want to have more mental health. And I said, so do my buddies in the police department. We want to have social workers. I said, so do my buddies in the police department. But they've actually had funding issues with that since the beginning of time. And the cameras that all y'all say that they don't want, they won't go to work anymore without them on because it protects them. Yeah. So it's one of those things. When they get out of the car, they activate the camera and then they go. And so what took place in these conversations, which I thought was part of this, part of my hope with this platform, is that on the right, there are many good conservative ideas, ideas. 
And on the yeah. left, there are many good liberal ideas. But we don't even talk as a culture anymore. If someone's wearing a red hat, that guy's a, you know, that guy's a complete imbecile or numbskull. And then this guy on the right, if he's wearing a blue hat, then he's just a libtard, right? So we don't have any actual discourse anymore specific to facts and figures. And that's kind of where I liked Andy's approach specific to the framing it is that why do you say this? And these can be polite conversations. Oh, they can. Yeah, they're absolutely right. In fact, the guy who used to be my main agent at the Washington Speakers Bureau for 16 years, uh, he has a, a boutique uh, speaker management company now. He deals with all kinds of really prominent folks. One of the guys is an African-American guy whose claim to fame is talking people out of the Ku Klux Klan. He befriends Klansmen. Yeah. And uh, he has a, a policy. It's it's not the academic policy kind of that Andy was recommending of sort of philosophically, let's take through a, a critical thinking perspective on this. But right. it's, it's more like a dialogue of respect toward a person as a human being. And, and this fellow asks questions about his beliefs and why he holds those beliefs right. and does so very respectfully, right. um, putting off any raising of objections or counter evidence or anything like just hearing somebody out. And this launches a long process, which has led to an amazing number of people leaving extreme right-wing groups and actually having this guy come to their wedding as their best man or something. You know, a white dude who was a Klansman is inviting this black guy to be his, his be your best man in this wedding. It just shows how, when you deal with human beings as human beings rather than as the bearers of ideology, yeah. that is your one chance to free them from the ideology. Because nobody grows up wanting to be an ideologue. They grow up wanting to be loved and valued and, yeah. and honored and, heard. and respected and heard, yeah. right? Yeah. And so yeah. if we exercise those those features, if we approach people like that, we actually have a way of of moving people the needle on people's beliefs and and attitudes without requiring up front that they become conceptual philosophers with us and weigh the evidence and all that which is really good downstream but it's hardly a place to start now you and I may have talked about this before but we live in an era where a lot of people say there's a death of expertise or a death of right. respect for expertise and yet the hardest core right-wing people I know still pick the dentist to go to when they have tooth trouble, yeah. right? They still uh, pl- pick the car mechanic to go to when they have car trouble, and they don't want any old guy flying their airplane, right? So they still yeah. have a view of expertise, but with respect to the things they understand. One of our problems in America, there was a book written uh, decades ago. It may be half century old now. Anti-intellectualism in American life by Richard Hofstadter, Columbia historian. Oh, all the that. all the streams in American life that have been anti-intellectual. Certain religious streams, certain streams of thought in business and commerce, or others. It, it's come from many directions. But by the time you finish Hofstadter's book, you're amazed we have schools in America at all. You're amazed we have any universities. And so when I read the book, probably 1974. I remember thinking, man, democracy requires a relatively educated electorate. Without that, we're in trouble. I mean, when you read the Federalist Papers, 
which are fairly sophisticated political thought, and realized that they first were published in local newspapers around the country and actually read by the farmers and the blacksmiths and 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 the local mercantile store guy. They were read by ordinary people who tried to grapple with these issues in their lives. And look at now, you know, we're, and we want to be entertained by a sitcom. We're willing to argue about maybe who the greatest quarterback is. But people are so far from understanding politics. And as Aristotle said, politics is all about, you know, people in partnership for a shared purpose. I mean, for any government, the first thing a government should be concerned about is protect protecting people. And when it comes to defunding the police, really? I mean, uh, when you look at political theory through the ages, you see a lot of things that are disagreed on. But the one thing that seems secure is that Maslow hierarchy bottom level there. Let's provide safety for human flourishing. We have to make people give them a safe environment. And so that leads to police departments. It leads to armies. It leads to mask and vaccine mandates. Just trying to keep people safe so that they can build flourishing lives on top of that. So when you try to pull the plug on any of those safety levels altogether, you're really running against the course of of the best human thought about what government is supposed to be for. I agree with that. And I also think that there's, there's an evolutionary biology to it in the sense that there's a guy named uh, Brett Weinstein. And he, he was, I think I talked to you about him briefly, but he, I found out about him through Dr. Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lakanyoff's book, mm-hmm. which was The Coddling of the American Mind. And part of which they talked about this younger generation called the iGen, or kids that were born in 1995 and went to college in 2013. It was the first area of universities that had safe spaces for ideological and emotional harm. Right. So if someone was on the campus wearing a red hat and preaching uh, the GOP mantra, this was offensive to the point where these children felt they needed to be in a safe space where they could go and talk about their triggers. Right. And Brown University, probably the most egregious example, and I always bring it up because it was just mind-blowing, they actually had milk and cookies and coloring books, and crayons, and pillows, and soft music, so that you could come and, and deal with this. And I, I made the joke when I talked to one of my professor buddies about this on a podcast. I said, if I sent my little boys to Berkeley, and they came back freshman year and told me they had milk and cookies because someone was wearing a red hat on the campus, I would say, dude, come here, come here, give me a <laughs> hug. I love you and I failed you as a father. I'm so sorry about this because <clears throat> that was an example for me of ideology taking hold in a negative way on the left. And that's yeah. another thing too that I don't think our culture is doing a very good job of owning our own shit. So you and I being liberals, we have to point out our liberal brethren when they go too far. Oh, that's you, another- absolutely. That, like we were saying earlier, ideology is all about, always about taking things to an extreme, right? Correct. And, and so- if governments are established to provide safety for people, okay, what we have to do is get a good, clear, wise, common sense understanding of safety and harm, right? And so yeah. to, to, to blow up the concept of harm in such a way as that hearing a, an opposing point of view you feel harms you. Right. Is to just live in obliviousness with respect to what, say, philosopher John Stuart Mill in 1859 on liberty. He said it's the conflict of ideas that make democracy possible as a form of enlightened governance. You know, so we have to welcome a conflict of ideas, not feel it that exactly. any opposing idea is a source of harm to us, you know. And we're seeing that across the, the nation. And yeah. the reason I broached the subject again 
not to dive too deep into the safe space, is that it was looked at in 2016 when this first came out, this discussion. It was fringe. It's not really going to hurt. And you're like, well, okay, it's not. It's actually not fringe anymore because a lot of these graduates, like this young man I talked to yesterday, he actually believes in abolishing the police. He actually believes in socialism versus capitalism. And I'm not saying there's bad, there's not good pieces of socialism. We have a mixed market and blah, blah, blah. But these are ideas that were spawned within this this young group. And the way they see the world is very different because to your point, if harm is defined as or violent, like speech is violence, right? And it harms you, and you need safe space because of that. And you're an adult. That was the thing I just couldn't get past. It's right. eighteen to twenty-two. These are this right. isn't eight to twelve. This is eighteen to twenty-two right. years old. You're an adult. You're in the world, and right. so. Right. And then I asked, I asked one of my professor buddies on this. I said, "So does this then transfer to corporate America? Do we have safe spaces at companies now?" And he said, "Yes." And it was a, and he was a Berkeley guy. So I'll I'll say that Berkeley in general. And I said to him. Same thing I would say to anybody with that argument is like, well, isn't college about spirited debate? Isn't it about hearing Mm -hmm. ideas, some of which are abhorrent, that you need to then either try to understand better in your mind and or push back on the person you're talking to? So for me, if I'm on a campus like that, I wasn't smart enough to get into Berkeley, but if I was there now and someone was talking about things I didn't, I couldn't see or understand. I would ask them questions. Right. I'd be like, okay, hey, so question: <laughs> How do you do? do, do? If yeah, you know, right. if A is B, then how is B is not C? And, and like that piece, and you're like, oh, okay, well, so that's part of the college experience is dealing with conflict. And oh, I was in a sociology I, class where they brought in every crazy person in the news in America during the student uh, uh, revolt of 1970. During the, they would bring in the uh, you know Chicago Seven, whoever wasn't in jail, they would bring in Jane Fonda. This was University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, a class of 1,500 kids in one sociology class, wow. and they and they would bring in all these radical spokespeople who would say crazy things and. Uh, there was, there was a bizarre version of this going on back then. Or one of my friends came home from a class, and I, I stopped going to this to this class because it was just so crazy. <laughs> and my friend came home one day. And he said, "There's this guy who's a really famous radical at the time. You know, I don't know if he was weather underground or what he was, but uh, right. and that he was saying we should all drive, buy used cars as cheap as you can get, drive them to Washington D.C., put them in a circle around the, and then just get out, and turn leave. off the engine, right? Keys. <laughs> Let's do a blockade of Washington D.C. with used cars." And right. he said. The class is so stupid that it, they're act, asking questions that were so stupid. It's almost like, what color cars should we buy? Should they all How be- much gas should I have? <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, so, but the idea in, in Berkeley was famous for this, of course, is any crazy idea can be aired. Let's see where it leads in intelligent discussion. And right. uh, the whole idea of safe space is not as if you or I believe that there's no such thing as dangerous speech. I mean, right. you're seeing that in propaganda right now. If yes. you can convince people of fa- the, the, fa- the true is false and the false is true and human beings are insects and all this kind of thing, that's dangerous speech. And it was used by the yes. Nazis. It was used, has been used throughout human history to do bad things. So it's not as if we're saying that speech can't be dangerous and that there ought to be limits on how dangerous it can be and still be allowed in public spaces. We're not saying that at all. 
But we're just saying, look, you can go to extremes with anything. You know, be careful your ideology that you're not even aware. Ideology is often like water to fish or air to birds. The people who are in one don't realize they are. Right. Because that's a it's fish all around chill. them. Yeah. Right? That's you're right. The fish swims up to his body. He's like, hey, how's the water? He's like, what's water? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, right. Yeah, exactly. It, and, and that's that, ideology. Yeah. And that is now transforming into, and this is another discussion I had with a CRT expert because, and I'm going to kind of focus on the left for a little bit because I, I think we can, we can get into the rights ideology problems because they're so predominant. And well, we can, we'll get into that. But the idea there is that the CRT piece, so critical race theory, which I've done a lot of homework on over the last three or four months, is a big, also a big topic in our yeah. culture today. Right. And it, the fact that it was a academic, scholarly pursuit in the 70s and 80s by Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw and those folks and stayed at that level. And this was at people of your ilk, right? They were discussing these big pieces and how systemic racism is actually woven into our culture, our institutions, our speech, our, speech, our, speech, our, speech, our thinking, thinking, and that has somehow shared with the public at large because we need to understand our history if we're not going to repeat it and we need to understand our history so that we can be more kind to one another. That piece so that's where I think the origin is beautiful and wonderful. When the ideology then becomes, oh, we're teaching CRT to children, the people that don't have time to watch or read about critical race theory think, oh my God, they're teaching, they're teaching my kids things that I don't want them to be taught, which right. again is not accurate because CRT is a academic mm-hmm. institution. Or it's, right. it's, it has an academic origin. And so maybe pieces and parts of that are being right. shared. But yeah. that's where that, that ideology gets crazy because then you're like, well, that doesn't even make any sense. But then what the left, in my opinion, is doing wrong is when you go in and teach pieces of that, like diversity, inclusion, excuse me, diversity, inclusion, and equity at the corporate level. And as you know, I do some corporate coaching mm-hmm. with media executives. And they've all shared with me that when they have to teach some of the thinkings of critical race theory, which is what the right is saying, is being taught. And it mm-hmm. is now in institutions, educational institutions specifically, some of the largest Fortune 100 companies that you've actually spoken for in, in front of. 26 of the Fortune 100 companies, according to Christopher Rufo, who is a, a journalist and scholar on this subject, said that they're teaching this. And what they're teaching is where my approach, again, is more the ideology versus how we could actually get it done. If the collective yeah. goal is to teach history that it was painful to, to teach and painful to listen to, that's right. one thing. But if it's to come in and say to a group of executives that you are, your thinking is based on white supremacy and you guys are all racists mm-hmm. inherently and your implicit bias is causing destruction to our culture and to the team and to your company. And, and I'm not pulling punches. That's what they're saying. Mm-hmm. If you look at like, uh, Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility book. She talks about the fact that we're all racist. And I, for one, admitted this to my buddy who, who wrote a book, Letters to My White Male Friends. He's a black DEI consultant, lawyer, educator, author, super smart dude. And we had the same conversation. And I said to him, like, I know your practice, your actual consultancy doesn't do this because you know it doesn't work. Right. And he's like, you're right. The approach is really important. And that's where ideology, in this sense, goes too far where we're not getting anything done as a culture. 
if we want to teach history to our kids, if we want to teach systemic racism and how we can actually buttress that through education, we can't start accusing people like you and me of being virulent racist because that's a that's a word that is as toxic as pedophile. Like you, well, you can't know, call somebody a racist. When when an approach is when an educational approach is starts off as accusatory rather than sort of explanatory, right? Problems always result. In fact, if if the if if the history of race in America is taught right, uh, everybody goes away, never having been accused of being a racist themselves, wondering right. though if they are, and that's the right the yes. Socratic questioning. Boy, am I like that? Do I do that? That's yeah. if you if you present a but there are too many white folks these days who have. It, it, Critical race theory has become what, uh, there's an ancient word that comes from Jewish history, a shibboleth. A shibboleth, you could tell a member of the enemy because they would pronounce a word a certain way. That was a shibboleth, a giveaway. So if, if, okay. if critical race theory, it's almost like what you say about critical race theory is a shibboleth. You can tell whether they're in our camp, our tribe, or the other tribe. Right. Right. But, and and it's too bad that too many white parents are saying, look, you guys are going to make my kids hate their own race, hate their own right. country. and. The critical, uh, the people who support some aspect of what's called critical race theory should be saying, no, 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 this is not about hating America or hating a race at all. This is about understanding how we can get better as a country, how we can get better uh, as a, 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 a stew of races that we are in this country. It's not about accusation or blame or hate at all there all there almost is this false hidden assumption that something has to be perfect in order to be loved and we all know in our yeah. personal lives none of us would be loved if those around us required perfection and that's not required uh, with respect to race with respect to national uh, policy and institution so we have to say you know love is a commitment you can be loved your country be committed to your country while seeing all of its flaws that need uh, uh, correction this is one of many Right. And so if it's done right, again, ideology is going to push it to an extreme. But we're always pulling. It's like Aristotle said about any virtue. There's a corresponding two vices, uh, a, a deficit and a, a surplus. For courage, there is the deficit of cowardice. You don't have enough of something. Um, you run from danger. And there's a, a surplus. There's a too much where you're, you have a rashness, a careless craziness about danger. Um, the extreme sports craziness stuff, you know, and, and courage is a midpoint, right? It's not going to either extreme, whereas ideology is always about going to extremes. So when we see somebody going to an extreme, the approach should never be you're totally wrong in every possible way. The, right. the approach should be okay. Let's let's pull that extreme back in and see what the legitimate concern is here, and let's talk about that. Now, let's not talk about the extreme because once we've talked about the legitimate concern, you may give up the extreme yourself, realizing you don't need to go that far. Well, and I'd also say to the to the African American who was going and talking to KKK members, he didn't do it at scale, and I think that's another right. piece. Right, is that. He did it individually. And that's where people, because for me, and you know this about me, I have so many conservative friends. And when I sit down and talk to them one-on-one, we don't yell and scream at each other. We don't call each other names. I'll say to them, come on, dude. (laughs) We're close together on this defund the police thing. You said that you guys on the the left want more mental health. You want psychology. You want de-escalation training. You want cameras. You want all the things that the police want, by the way. Yeah. 
Right. So if you talk to the police, you right. know, saying that they're racist as a group, as an institution, that's not the right approach because it just doesn't work. Right. And that's another thing too. When, when you see, like I've seen firsthand in this two weeks that I've been interviewing folks, is that we're not that far apart. When I talk to my conservative friends and my liberal friends, I'm like, guys, where are we with that? So Gilgamesh yeah. had a happy ending. Yeah, <laughs> what right. happened there? Right. What happened? What was it that format, you know, took Gilgamesh from this crazy narcissistic leader to his place of peace and serenity and or well-being? What, what was it in the story that you believe altered his change, his ideological yeah. change? Well, um, he first had to come to care about something other than himself, which he did. I mean, so, so his people get sick of his behavior, his exploitive behavior, sexually exploited to all the pretty women in the kingdom, uh, in other ways exploited, exploiting toward the men and the older women and all this. And, and they finally pray to the gods, do something about this guy. We can't stand him anymore. And you think that in answer to the prayer, there's going to be a well-placed lightning bolt, you know, or something like that, right? <laughs> the gods are going to do something, are going to intervene in a way that really makes sense. No, what they do is they create a counterpart to him, a guy who's just as strong, just as handsome, just as powerful, uh, and just as charismatic, but, but he's the opposite in a lot of ways because Gil Gilgamesh is a man of the city. They create a man in the forest, a man who grows up with the animals, who's going to be the first equal Gil Gilgamesh ever meets, and they fight and kind of fall in love with each other. Uh, there's the first right. romance of, of human history in our first story. Gilgamesh starts caring about this guy in Kaidu. And uh, it, it, the long story short, Enkidu dies. And uh, there's this huge loss in Gilgamesh's life. And he understands mortality for the first time. He understands limitations for the first time. He understands caring about something other than his own ego for the first time. And he goes on this quest to try to defeat mortality, a quest for eternal life, which, of course, doesn't work. But in the process of which... He's kind of transformed. And so we get one of our most deep motifs in human literature and life, the, the adventure that results in transformation. Um, the hero on a quest who is transformed and then comes back and does good things for his, his exactly. people. So it was, it was, it, it was almost like in the Iliad, which is often called, um, the greatest anti-war book ever written. It's about the Trojan War, of course. And there, uh, there's all this tragical loss of life depicted viscerally uh, throughout yeah. the Iliad. And somebody ever once asked me, well, how did the people like, you know, even the Greek leaders are at war with each other, Agamemnon and Achilles. They're supposed to be fighting the Trojans, but they're mostly fighting each other, you know, in various ways. And how do they get over that? How do they, how do, how do, how is that healed? It's because they both have to come into contact with something they value more than their own egos. And it happens in some really poignant stories within the Iliad. Two guys are going to fight each other on a battlefield. And one of them just says, look, before we do this, it's going to be a one-on-one -on -one battle. And their, their, their uh, uh, teammates are standing on the sidelines. They're just going to fight it out, these two guys. And, and one of the guys says, look, before we do this, I've really noticed how good you are in battle. Can you tell me something about yourself? I've just never seen anybody as good as you on your side of the divide here and the guy says guy says to himself why is this idiot asking me to talk, talk about myself we're we've got to fight you know but he says all right and he starts talking about himself and the other guy realizes wait a minute your grandfather was my grandfather's best friend right. 
you know, and it's like all of a sudden they come to this realization. It's stupid for one of them to kill the other, regardless of how it comes out. It's stupid. Their grandfathers were best friends. They should be friends. And so they trade armor with each other so that everybody will know these two guys are not to be touched. And, and, and it's this really poignant thing, but they have to find a point of contact. They have to find something they both value other than their own egos. And that seems to be the recipe for getting people out of ideologies. They have to come to value something more than their own egos that aren't valued because of their egos. Right. And that show them a new way. And so that comes from the earliest time of human history. We've been struggling with this, with the same problem, which shows that we, you said you weren't smart enough to get into Berkeley. No, you weren't probably at that point in your life. You weren't motivated enough to get into Berkeley. But you know what? It starts to look like we're either all of us not smart enough or not motivated enough to learn these basic lessons that have been portrayed to us throughout human history. So if we had more of a historical consciousness, and I hated history courses in college, in, in uh, high school and uh, middle school. All that. I hated history courses. Oh, they were always taught in a really boring way. Uh, okay, in 1807, it's like, well, oh, what's God, the date? No. That yeah. was the thing. I remember getting the date wrong for Civil War. It was April 17th, 1861 or whatever it was. And I was like, that's not the point. This was about, <laughs> this, was about this was about, this whole assignment was about Robert E. Lee being a dick. Right? Yeah. Like, like, that's the whole point. So why are you getting, why are you fucking, <laughs> busting my chops about I missed the date. So yeah, yeah I mean, the same thing stands true with all these stories. And I'm, that's why I like mythology. And that's why I like your background because you know, Dionysus and, and uh, Athena, when they actually got into it, she wanted to send her kids to Plato's school, right? And, and wanted them to be thinkers. And he was like, no, nah, I, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I want to, I want to, I want to, and he didn't even have any reason. So he's just like, I don't want to do that. And they got in this big fight and the twins didn't get to go. And, and that was like an old story that bubbles up in my brain because you're like, it was about yielding to reason. And yeah. so the argument itself between those two wasn't even based on reason. And yeah. that's another problem. We don't have to get too like epistemological with our arguments specific to our society because I, I think that's where Andy's off. And that's just Ivory yeah. Tower problem yeah. is that you can't get too prescriptive specific to like, the ontology of arguments and how yeah, it all works. Yeah. But the idea there is that <clears throat> if we can just ask ourselves some basic questions, and that's why I like the way he framed it with mm -hmm. a bear claim versus an onus bearing claim, you don't have to use any of the terminology, but when you sit down with your friend yeah. and you talk to your friend about, let's just say masks, right? It, it's one of those, well, do, you, why, you know, do you really believe it's an infringement? Yeah, I do. And you're like, okay. But if you started with talking about how laughing about what you guys did in high school. Yeah. Laughing about the buddy of yours that pooped his pants, you know. Common like ground period. stuff. Yeah. And so like, yeah. then you're like, all right, dude, you remember when Scotty did that? You're like, dude, and then you laugh and you hug it out. And then the conversation changes. Yeah. It's not, it's not so combative and it's not like, I hate you and us versus them. And, you know, another question too, and I know you're not an actual neuroscientist or an evolutionary biologist, but a big piece of what I've found is that <clears throat> tribalism stems from evolution. Yeah. We don't want to be, we do not want to be kicked out of the tribe. Oh, the tribe, it was necessary for your individual survival as well right. as the survival for the tribe. There was this intertwined dynamic. The tribe needed you, you needed the tribe. So anything that excluded you from the tribe was a, more, a mortal danger. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so the need to conform to the tribe, um, you know, and, and, and 
it's interesting as you read Tolstoy, as I read Tolstoy, I read Anna Karenina over the last couple of weeks. Now I'm reading uh, War and Peace. And you see this conflict between the individual and society. Society's always pulling the individual to conform in all these ways. And and the individual is often pulling back in, in his or her own direction, saying, why should I do that? Why should I do that? And yet you've got this, you've got this creative dynamism of a support and conflict. And then Freud ends up writing civilization and its discontents about the very, the very same thing. I mean, what's the ego to do? What's the id to do? Uh, right. What's the per, the individual to do with all these pressures to conform to society? I think it's important to understand the evolutionary and the anthropological um, uh, function of close knit relationships, uh, kinship, which eventually expands to friendship which then eventually expands to form its own sort of kinship, which is such a gravitational pull for human beings that if you think that towing the line with respect to your shibboleth, saying the things that everybody else around you says is necessary for your protection, your belonging, your crew, you're going to be really hard to pull out of that, you know? And, and we're seeing that all around us in society right now, which is, is inimical to a lot of the reasons we have society, we have culture, we have government um, for protection, for flourishing. Uh, you can't flourish in a in an atmosphere of warring tribes. Nobody can feel safe. Nobody can flourish. And so our, our, our challenge right now is to find our way out. And because so much is filtered through social media, yeah. where people aren't face-to-face to hug it out, to joke about those friends they had in common in high school, but people are clashing against strangers all the time uh, over things they disagree on. Uh, there isn't that mechanism to kick in to bring people together. They just feel this this uh, uh, this pulling this pulling uh, apart. So, it, yeah, and I know, also think that if specific to social media, I've always mm-hmm. made the joke that if we put our baby pictures. On social media, right? So, like, yeah. how could I hate that your, guy? Your one-year-old, your one-year-old picture where you're just, you know, fat and you got all the little fat rolls Baby in your rolls, body, yeah. and a right. cute little, you know, onesie on with like one and a balloon next to you, and maybe a stuffed animal. We were all there, right? Yeah. We were all there together at one point. We we're all one, right? We we're all innocent, and we smelled good, and we yeah. didn't have any hair, and and we were completely helpless. Like like someone had to help us. If you looked at that picture (laughs) and I said, you're a fucking asshole. You know, it would be very hard to do that in my (laughs) opinion, because you're just like, okay. And it's the same thing with my friends. I've always, and that's kind of where I have used social media. And I shared this with you a long time ago, but my wife would often ask me like, why are you on Facebook debating with your high school friends about Donald Trump? Right. (laughs) And I'm like, cause I'm not going to change their mind, but I'm helping me understand the other side. You're right. And in doing so, if I can understand why they believe what they believe, then there's a possibility of us staying friends. Yeah. And so the idea with most of my friends, and again, I'm not talking about people that stormed the Capitol because I just don't have friends at that level that are bigots and crazy. I'm talking about people that say, I like his policies. I think he's an odious human being, but... (laughs) Right. I, I I didn't like Hillary and here's why. And you're like, okay, that's fair. <laughs> okay. Yeah. She's not exactly the, you know, the bastion of integrity either. So I got that. But what happens with those conversations is that you two become closer. And then if your other friends are watching, which this happened, 
I would get yeah. numerous calls on, on DMs and people say, hey, I really enjoyed that conversation. I enjoyed, yeah, that, you kick, right. I enjoyed that you kick people off your feed when they get mean. Yeah. And I'm like, it's kind of like inviting me. I invite my friends to my bedroom, just like you did when you were a kid. Yeah. Right. That's our social media now. I got my posters up. You know, I had like John McEnroe and I had, you know, my Marantz stereo system and, you know, my bed and my gerbil cage. And I invite my buddies and we listen to Boston yeah. and Aerosmith and right. That was my room. And so today I'm inviting my friends to my room and I'm like, hey, if you're going to be a dick, you got to leave. Right? You, can't, yeah, you right. can't just come in here and rip on my friend because he has a red hat on. That's not yeah. fair. And that yeah. doesn't make any sense. And by the way, this is a really nice guy. Yeah. He just happens to believe in something you don't. And at least qualify it. Let's qualify yeah. this relationship. And in doing all of this over the last, I don't know how many years, it actually changed the way my brain works. And that's why I think maybe I was so attached to Andy's idea because our brain can be altered. Yeah. The way that we yeah. deal with our lives, the way that we deal with stress, the way that we deal with, con with conflict, specific to the emotional sense. And that goes back to the Jonathan Haidt's first book. I don't know if you've ever read that, but it was called The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Religion and Politics. No, I never read that. It's a phenomenally cool book. As a psychologist, he frames it in basic psychology, which we use right. in advertising. Ocean is the, like the five frameworks. So you have openness, you have conscientiousness, you have extroversion, you have agreeableness and you have neuroticism and you have all these traits. And then within those traits, you have things that cater to the right and cater to the left. Mm -hmm. So if you can understand that your conservative friend, conservative by definition is conserving institutions, right? Conserving meta narratives, those kind of things. Then you're like, okay, I don't agree with you, dude. But if I can actually understand that your brain under conscientiousness and there's a derivative that says, I like order. I like right. sanctity, right. right? And so someone who's really uh, patriotic, as an example, or is very, very offended by someone peeing or touching the flag or burning the flag, some people are like, oh, get over yourself. You're like, well, no, that, that person is wired that way. Right. That's biology. That person actually sees the world differently. And so if you can say, and this is what Dr. Height was talking about, he would say that, and, and I'm, paraphrasing and probably bastardizing a lot of his uh, deeper thoughts. But the idea there is that if you have sanctity and order on the right and you have harm and fairness on the left, which are two huge components to the, how the left thinks, mm -hmm. everything we really talk about, whether it's abortion or immigrants or you know, anything that we're talking about is our first lens is through that lens, harm, fairness. Theirs is order, sanctity, you know, borders. It, 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 but it doesn't mean they're evil. It right. just means that's the way they think. And so what he uses as a really powerful example is that logic is, an, is not, and this is where he goes against Andy, and I agree with this, is that it's not about logic and reason. You can't start with logic and reason because human beings historically argue based on subjective emotion. Right. So the idea behind it is if I'm on a, I'm, let's just say that rider, this is his analogy, is that the rider, me in this case, is logic and reason. And I'm atop a 20,000 pound elephant. And someone says, Donald Trump, <laughs> and my emotions sway to the left, right? And as soon as they do, that was all emotion, had nothing to do with logic and reason. Now, in a post hoc argument, my brain justifies the reason yeah. that I swung left. Oh, yeah. You know, in fact, th and this has been recognized for a really long time. I mean, Plato understood 
how emotions pull us. You know, um, Pascal uh, in the uh, 17th century also had a lot to say about the limits of, uh, of reason, that yes. any reason that cannot recognize its own limits is weak indeed, he said. So he was distinguishing between weakness and limitation. Uh, you can have a limit uh, and not that not count as a weakness, but the Enlightenment Project wanted to bring everything under the sovereignty of reason and didn't understand that that's impossible with embodied beings like it us, is. you know. So you read, I, I'm talking about Tolstoy just because I'm reading Tolstoy now, but you see the characters who are searching for meaning, purpose, all kinds of things through reason, and it never gets them what they want. And when they finally get the solutions to their problems. It's something beyond reason that has to happen. It's part of a story that has to unfold. And, you know, we were story-living creatures and storytelling creatures long before we were reasoning creatures. And so when yeah. we plug back into that ancient part of our brain, we can do stuff. We, we, can, we can make things happen and we can actually change things. Well, and that's kind of the hope is that what, and that's, I don't have the answer for it, but I, I do believe that one-on-one -on -one conversations make a difference. Yeah. And, and from that, then it can, it can actually start to cascade, right? Because I think right. that's where, just within my group, I went to a place called Piner High in Santa Rosa, and I would say that I am on the outside of a lot of my friends from that school, po politically and ideologically. But we still love each other. And I went to dinner with two of them about a month ago. And we sat around and we laughed and we talked about our kids and we talked about, you know, our high school experiences and, and now we all have wrinkles. And, and it was just like, it was, a, it was a wonderful time. And when I see these people online, you know, trying to vote against Newsom, right, in our election today, um, I don't hate them. Right. I, I, I get it. You know, and, and it's, it's the same kind of thing with Hillary. One of my friends asked about Larry Elder, who's the front runner in the Republican Party against this recall in San Francisco today. And uh, I, I, I knew her from high school and she's this wonderfully educated young lady who's doing very well for herself. And she said, I just don't, I really don't like Newsom. And I said, well, I, I can understand that because the, the perception on the right is that he's an elitist and that he's disconnected. Right. And he did a lot of shit that proved that, right? He went to right. French Laundry for dinner you know, with no masks, with a bunch yeah. of rich people. Right. And, and he put his kids in private school. They were in yeah. school when all our kids were not. Yeah. And so it was just one of those things where like, buddy, you know, you're so disconnected. And I don't have any ill will towards Newsom. It's got the greatest head of hair ever. And I'm like, I got to respect that about him. But I was like, that's the problem is that I don't hate my friends who want to recall right. Gavin Newsom. I will say things like, well, you guys realize Larry Elder decided, said out loud in a call with Candace Owens that he thinks that white slave owners should get reparations. I said, that's the guy you want to run California? <laughs> Which, by the way, is the fifth largest economy in the world. Well, you know, and your point, uh, Joey, uh, you know, Gavin Newsom as a politician. Because I think should... we've already run. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, Gavin Newsom as a politician should have known 
these these appearances more than realities or what sway people. And he, he should have been doing a lot more all along the way to win over the people who would be so offended by his Napa Valley dinner and his the school that he chose for his kids and all that. I mean, it's not that you can't go to French Laundry. It's that you better be doing a lot of other stuff that shows you're a person. Well, yeah, don't people, do one yeah. thing and say another, I think. Right, right. That's the, right. That's Absolutely the, and that was right. same thing with Nancy Pelosi going to get her hair done. Right. She went and had a yeah. private session yeah. with someone. You're like, you can't. First of yeah. all, you're rich, Nancy. So just yeah. have someone come to your goddamn house. Right. No one can see it, right? right? They don't know she's yeah. a hairdresser. Yeah. Like, use your brain. But it, it, for me, I think that's where, and I don't have an answer for this, but like the social contract that Hobbes always talks about, right, was let's not, we can agree that lying and, and stealing is bad. Yes. And that's, if you start on that front issue, you're like, okay. Good. There's a very Hobbesian approach where you're like, okay, we can agree that this isn't good. We can agree that a man that says white slave owners should get reparations as a black man is probably not the guy you want in charge of your state. But yeah. we can't even have that discussion because of the hate, the venom that goes yeah. based on parties, based on ideology, where right. it does go to the extremes. And I know that ideologies have to have been formed since Gilgamesh, thank you for that foundational story, because it really does help understand the human condition has been at this for yeah. years. And yeah. they talk about, oh God. So we just, I don't know what the answer is, Professor. I just, for me, I wanted to have this discussion because it, without reason and, and understanding, I guess it's probably a better word. We have to start to understand one another as a culture and stop hating someone based on what we see on social media or what we see in a color scheme that they're wearing or how these things work. Because like, when I go back to visit my mom this week, a lot of my mom's friends are very conservative. Yeah. And so they'll make jokes about gay people. And they'll make jokes... And these are 80-year-old women, so I'm not actually going to get into the... you know. You need a little, you know, because this is not my place. Right. But it's one of those things where when I, I'm with them, I don't get mad. Right. I love them and I love my little mommy. She, she has some beliefs that I don't. Right. And it's just who she is. And I, 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 I don't know, dude. I think that what scares me most is that we're not talking as a culture. And who is talking is our media platforms. Right. And they're even more isolated and they're all echo chambers. It isn't us versus them, which is a very tribal problem, which we know historically causes major problems in a culture. You can't have this level of tribalism and get anything done. And I think if there's anything that's proof positive of that is our body politic. I don't care where you sit, right? It doesn't, what we're doing isn't working. Right. And if you look at what took place in Texas with the abortion law, yeah. That's ideology taken to its extreme. Right. Right? I have my whole family, my wife's whole family lives in Austin, Texas. Oh, wow. And this is a very scary thing yeah. for these people because it's it's so draconian yeah. in its drafting. The fact that they actually launched a vigilante platform uh, <laughs> to, circum, to circumvent any federal officer being Sorry. implemented or part of the solution means you can't be sued, which means there's no constitutionality to the law. I have to give credit to the lawyers there. I'm like, yeah. all right, 
guys, right. you know, <laughs> bravo, you fuckers. But yeah. it's like that was, you know, that's taking ideology to the extreme. I don't think, and I don't know this from data, but I don't think most Republicans, and we both have Republican friends, think that this is a fair and just rule. Right, right. I, and, you know, that's the point I was going to make. I mean, in the, in the media-driven society we have right now, it's easy to come to think that these kind of issues are foremost on everybody's minds all right, the time. Right. But even the guys I know who uh, whose extreme right wing views have shocked me to learn about. You know, it could be a guy who comes to work on our house or uh, that we've known for yeah. twenty years or somebody. That, uh, you know, and I'm always shocked to hear certain things, but. 90% of his day is not thinking about that kind of stuff at all. It's just going about his no. business, going about his life, seeing his friends at lunch. You know, so, so it's not as if we lived in a totally ideological, ideologically charged everyday world. And often people said that was the greatness of Tolstoy's uh, War and Peace. He showed how these wars were going on at some level. And there are people who kind of opted in to being in, you know, to being uh, fixated on that stuff all the time. But for the vast majority of people, even the soldiers in the battles, when they were on campaign, the war was not on their minds. They weren't no. thinking about the next battle. They were thinking about who's going to win in tonight's game of cards, you know, or right. who was going to drink the most liquor that night or who was going to the ordinary takes over. And so some of us, we have to pull ourselves back from being too alarmist about what's wrong with American culture right now, and a lot is wrong. But it may not be as extreme as it's portrayed in the media. I agree with that. From portraying that's what I'm saying. Right? Individually, I'm seeing that. That's what yeah. I'm saying. When I talk to my individual friends, and it's, some, yeah. it's not always on camera, but we're really close. And one yeah. thing I'll share with them, based on my own history with, in the media world, is that what we understood from media is that if we get a message sequentially in front of someone seven right. times, and that's a mythical yeah. number, but they right. start to believe it. Yeah, yeah. And the same thing stands true if someone shares a meme from your tribe, whether it's actually you know justifiable or not, or fact-checked or not, isn't really that important. It's one of those things where you're like, well, I love this person, and they sent me this meme, and I agree with that. And, so, and by the way, I, I just put in a 12-hour day. Yeah. And I'm tired, and now I have to cook dinner for my kids. And so I don't have time to do the homework. So I'm just going to believe this, and that's fine. But then that starts to add up. Yeah, right. So when you start to see... And again, there's a lot of nonsense on the left. We talked about some of it today. And there's obviously a lot of nonsense on the right. And so if you don't have the time to start to pull these pieces apart, and you don't really understand how your brain works when you're fed information right. from people you love, and that all your friends believe this, and that when you go out to dinner or you go to a concert with these folks, they're all in the same camp. They all yeah. agree on the same yeah. pieces. That feels very nurturing. That feels oh, yeah. very we're, we're, we're hard. You know, you couldn't, people couldn't develop the way we do from um, birth on without trusting the testimony of others, respected others, close others. We are programmed, we are wired to have a belief default uh, in our brains, we tend to believe the people closest to us, Correct. whatever they say. And yep. it takes something strong to dislodge the default setting. You know, okay. I've got to know a lot about Uncle Joe 
to stop believing stuff he tells me about politics if he's been a part of my life since I was a little kid, you know. Yep. And so this is just kind of necessary for human growth and human society. Uh, the testimony of others is the basis for most of what we believe about everything. You know, uh, yeah. our personal firsthand experience is so limited, especially when it comes to things like politics. So I've never met most of the people who are in the news, uh, uh, you know, in the Senate, in the in the House. I've not met them. I've not seen in person what they do or what they're like. I just have to believe what I'm told, you know. And so we 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 constantly as human beings have to learn to when to be believers and when to be skeptics and how to blend that properly in our lives. And wisdom is part of the answer to that. Growing in wisdom gives you this ability of discernment that is pretty rare these days when it comes to those who get platforms to comment on this stuff in public. You know, the, 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 uh, the op-ed writers for the various newspapers, the featured uh, folks on the various networks, they're not typically picked because of their wisdom. They're picked because of their knowledge of information, and they're picked because of maybe really their, their appearance or their facility in language. But wisdom is not on the card to be checked off, and that's a real unfortunate aspect of a media culture, right? Yeah, and, and I think that that's a great point because knowledge doesn't necessarily equate to wisdom. No, not depends, at all, right? You can know tons you, of facts, right? Yes. And you can be you can have a uh, you can have a a hard a hard disk for your mind that just it has millions of, of factoids at your fingertips without having any sense of discernment or perspective or balance or uh, or a uh, compassion. And wisdom yeah. involves all those things, you know, it involves perspective and, and compassion. And uh, b- p- most people don't understand that wisdom and love are deeply, uh, deeply connected. Uh, and the whole idea of governance from the start was the philosophers who, who argued about this from the very beginning were always hoping whether they viewed democracy as the way to go or they viewed um, uh, a kingship, monarchy, as the way to go, they were always hoping for wise people to be uh, at the top uh, of the government. And how do you do that? Well, how do you get great professional basketball players, great professional football players? You start in the peewee leagues. You start with the skill sets when they're really young and you raise them up and you, you, you sort through the herd at every level, right? Yeah. So that by the time you get to the pros, you got guys who are really good. Well, that was the view about government, whether you were going to have democratically elected representatives or whether you were going to have appointed monarchs or hereditary monarchs or whatever. Right. Uh, the idea was to, to, to sort through with wisdom. And so that regardless of what the structure of your society was, you were going to have wise people at the top for the most part call in the shots. But we haven't done the hard work at the ground level, at the peewee league level, to cultivate wisdom and virtue in our culture. And that's why we get chaos uh, like we have all around us. So I'm hoping this is going to force people to see the grassroots need for education in certain things more than other things. Like you were saying earlier, it's not the date that you have to get right with the Civil War. It's right. the character of the people who caused the Civil War. Right. Let's let's dwell on that. Let's make sure our kids understand that. And then maybe they'll know who to avoid and who to affiliate with in the future. I agree. And I, I also think that's education is the fulcrum to all of these pieces for me. Again, if you start to talk to people offline about this and not fucking hammer each other on social media, 
they'll they'll start to they're like, yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. Not to say, well, we're gonna. It's not an extreme. It's it's one of those pieces where education can help. Yeah. Specific to understanding, if if you understand what the Civil War was about, which a lot of people don't, yeah. right? Then you can understand why critical race theory is a necessary platform. Yeah, for a component, a, a nest, yeah. Uh, an important component of understanding a society, and that's the yeah. thing about racism. People have traditionally think racism is an individual attitude only, right? And if they if they don't understand how structures and processes can embody uh, uh, the features that will enhance or encourage this attitude on the part of a lot of individuals, then they miss a big part of the picture. And why should there be a certain aspect of the way societies function that's forbidden to be taught in schools? Because the schools are trying to prepare people for lives in those societies in which those forces will be impinging on, on them so they should understand the forces all around them. Right, not to label something as evil or a group right. of people as evil, but to understand the mechanics of their society. Because when you understand the way things work, you can more productively intervene with positive consequences. But if you don't understand the way things work, you end up being vulnerable to the ideologues who give you slogans. You know, and that's why we have been moving for decades into being a sloganistic culture. Uh, yes. Maybe the most sloganistic culture on earth right now. Well, I, and I think that that's one thing that Donald Trump really understood. You know, yeah. make America great again wasn't even his; it was Reagan's. But yeah. he readopted it and, and he made it yeah. work. And it, everything's a slogan or a bumper sticker. And it's oh, in fact it's that was the broadest thing they ever got because that was four words. Most of their stuff was three words, right? Lock her up, build a wall. You can go through so much of the rhetoric and slogans. They were three word slogans because they're easy to remember. They're easy to chant. And if you want a mass movement, which is not based on reason, which is the only kind of mass movement you're ever going to get, it can't be based on reason, then you want something that's easy to remember, that's easy to chant, that's easy to convey. Uh, And so you had a lot. I even made a list one time of all the three words, the things I was I was hearing. And it was just amazing this this formulaic nature of the communication. But it was extremely effective. Right. Well, that came up if I'm not mistaken, after the Nixon loss, right? The Heritage Foundation was actually brought into to society for that exact reason. So the conservatives could figure out messaging yeah. and understand how they actually approach things. And then Newt, yeah, it was Newt Gingrich that took it to the next level in 94, right? right? He actually, and, and that is a very educated man. So he yeah. understood the power of words. He understood the power of phrase. He understood the power of story. And I think that that's another example of, you know, how powerful narratives can be yeah, specific right. to ideology. And yep. then those that don't have the time to research all of this, like you and I, we're sitting around reading, right? That's, there's not a lot of people that are doing that right now. So right. my mom is an example being, you know, Mexican, adopted, poor. She wasn't looking for, she wasn't looking to read about history and understand what's going on in our body politic. She was working two or three jobs and trying to keep us fed and trying to keep the, you know, the lights on and all of those pieces. And then because she was adopted and because she was a a devout Catholic, she voted for a president based on one issue. 
Right. It was whether they were pro-choice or pro-life. That was it. Right. My mom will vote for Trump based on that. That's another thing that people don't talk about. All Trumpers are deplorables. All Trumpers are bigots. All Trump, like not even close, right? Like my mom may be ignorant, but she's not a bigot. And, and a lot of my friends aren't bigots who voted for him because they have a completely different set of beliefs than I do. It doesn't mean they're bad human beings. And like, how do we get this across with two parties that just hate each other at the level we do? I mean, it's like, and, and, has there in your time, not not historically, in your time as a philosopher, because you're a, you've been a public philosopher for 25 years now? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, exclusive of the university, 26 years. Since you left years. Notre Dame? Yeah. yeah, I left Notre Dame in 1995, uh, officially became, uh, uh, resigned my position in 96, but I, I left in 95, so I've been doing it on my own since then and been exposed to every sort of person, every sort of organization. It's been an amazing, yeah, adventure. How do you see it? With that said, like that experience, your actual specific tenure as a professor, as a public philosopher, are we more divided today than we have ever been? Or are we on par? And I'm just seeing more because of social media and because I'm spending time, you know, reading it and absorbing it. I think it's, my my default tendency is to think of the pendulum swing and uh, that there are always going to be pendulum swings. And we're always yeah, going to be uh, every now and then at the sort of extreme we're at now. So, you know, there, there were times when people were literally tarred and feathered uh, for political differences. And, and, and sure. uh, there, there was uh, there were. Uh, fist fights in Congress, well, yes, yeah. and you and know, you get, yeah, <laughs> right. And so, at least we don't have that now. But what yeah. we do have that they didn't have, uh, even when I was growing up, even when I was in high school and college, we didn't have the kind of media culture we have right. now, right. where it could be in everybody's faces twenty four seven if you're not careful to avoid that. And so, there are um, the roots of a level of divisiveness that we've never experienced before. It's up to us to pull back from that, to feel the forces and pull back. I think I see in people around me a little bit of a pullback that there were, I have Democrat friends and Republican friends, and I have Democrat friends with a lot of Republican friends. And some of those Democrat friends had to just say to their Republican friends, let's just don't talk about this during the Trump years. Yeah. Let's never talk politics together. Yeah. I think some of them have gotten beyond that now, and some of the animosity on both sides has eroded away because they realize what's it for all this animosity? What, yeah. What's it? What's it? What positive thing could it possibly accomplish? And they kind of realize that you know what people are going to disagree about a lot of things. Let's learn to get along with each other if we possibly can. So I see a pullback already. Although the drift has been going on for a long time to get us to the point that we've been recently. So do you think, because you, you speak, or you've spoken, what, 2,500 times? Uh, yeah, uh, you know, a lot. Crazy yeah. number. It's, it's, in the, it's way over 1,000 for sure. Okay, yeah, so you've spoken kind of, all over the country to businesses, yeah. large and small. Oh, yeah. Do you think, and this is a, a theory that I have, so when the world comes back on, I'm, I'll go back and do some public speaking at, conferences. And the one thing I want to actually broach is this subject to some level. As as a leadership coach going out and talking about what leadership needs to be today, 
if you're leading a corporation today, and this kind of goes back into the safe space stuff, you now have to understand yeah. kids. Sir, I, I hate, I have to stop using that word. Young men and women that just came out of college that right. have been in, because all of these people that were brought up with the ideology of harm being right. ideological and emotional, it doesn't necessarily mean they're bad people. It's they see the world differently. They are now in our cultures. They are in our nonprofits, our NGOs, our corporate landscape, our body politic. And because of that, things are changing. If you look at HR today, it's very different than it was five years ago because of triggers, microaggressions, pronouns, right? Huge discussion between the left and the right. What does it mean? Why is it happening? And the same disconnect, the same level of venom is going back and forth on these fronts. And so my whole thing would be getting on the stage and saying something to the effect of, all right, how many of you in the audience fired your largest client last year because they wore a red hat? Right. And, and you and I know they don't do that. We don't do that. So your Democrat and Republican friends decided, hey, let's just not talk about that. We've been that way in the business world since I came up in the uh -huh. business world. And when I was in the agency world, I had numerous clients that were very conservative. And they would even make fun of me once in a while when we were out for dinner about a liberal tendency I had or whatever it would be. But it was a joke. It was a little jab. And, but we didn't talk about right. it. I didn't. You know, we talked about our kids. We talked about our vacations. We talked about the campaigns we were running. Whatever it may be, over a good bottle of vino and yeah. a perfectly cooked steak. And we were there. The business world, maybe, <laughs> for the first time in the world, could lead this charge yeah. because I, I business, know. business people don't have these these same you know cantankerous fights. And then fuck you, I'm firing you because online you can be like, yeah, I'm blocking you, I'm unfriending you, yeah, you're right, you're an idiot. Right. You don't do that in the business world. You don't say, you know, as an agency guy, I was going to like fire my largest client because they voted for George Bush. Right, right. It would be like, well, now I have to lay off twelve people because I. I yeah. am the yeah. arbiter of morals. I am smarter right. than everyone else. Like, no, you're not. You know, there's a sense in which, you know, the op-ed writer, Tom Friedman, actually saw this coming years ago when he kind of, he, he had a vivid image that it, he ends up, of course, it's not literally true, but it was a nice metaphor. He said, you know, countries that have McDonald's don't fight each other. Uh, <laughs> and he was making the point that if your country is advanced enough to have normal businesses like fast food restaurants, yeah. you're going to really hesitate before attacking or responding to an, a, a country with a, 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 in a military way who is also like that because you'd rather do business with each other, right? It's your point that you're making. Friedman with his, uh, you know, he's had a couple books where I can't remember which book it was. He floated that idea. It was like 20 years ago. And um, it's this whole idea that business has come to play a role globally that we was never envisioned for it. You know, mm -hmm. uh, Adam Smith didn't sit around and say, what can we do to replace governments? You know, oh, okay, let's do this. You know, no, that wasn't the idea at all. Um, but here we have um, hierarchical structures with great span and great power involving, you know, lots of people, which... Uh, 
in all of human history before us, we didn't have organizations like that. The only thing we had was a sovereign state, a nation, or, mm-hmm. you know, at a certain point, the Catholic Church had a certain span and, and structure, organizational structure and all that. But we're, we're not accustomed to having, you know, multinational, you know, global corporations and stuff. And how that changes the way people live together, you're right, it can, it can be. Everybody's quick to point out what a nefarious influence business has in the world. Business is responsible right. for global yeah. crisis. It's responsible for, for corruption and greed in, in other countries. It's responsible. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. My double power principle, anything with power for yeah. good has equal and opposite power for ill. If you're just going to point out the harms that business is responsible for, okay, let's go back and look at the comparable goods. And right. let's be the people who manage it in such a way as to eliminate reduce and eliminate those harms and beef up those goods, right? So that's exactly what you're saying, Joey. If we use business in the right way now, perhaps we can heal the political harms that if we only had politics and didn't have uh, the kind of business context that we have. And look, business in 1850, business in 1920 was real different in America for what it is now. Um, Right. So, so in the 30s and 40s, your local business people, half of them could be in the Klan, you know. Right, right. Uh, um, but right now, business has such a scope, has, uh, and even local business has a sensitivity because it's connected with bigger business in ways that we in our generation are being challenged to think through how to use this well as a way to heal the human condition rather than as a way to make it worse. So you're absolutely right to draw people's attention to that. Um, well, because it, Al- oh, go ahead. go ahead. I was going to say my friend, Alan Murray, who's um, editor in chief and CEO of fortune magazine. He's got this great podcast called leadership next in which he brings on CEOs who are trying to use their position in a really, yeah. it's like the anti-Gilgameshes of the world, trying to use their <laughs> positions in socially positive ways. And they don't see that as distracting them from their business, but they see that as I- immensely enriching uh, their business and the power of bringing people together for positive things that will have, bottom line, very positive results, rather than taking the eye off the ball, as Milton Friedman might have said long ago that they were doing, right? So, well, oh, yeah. goes back and to running your emotions like, again. Yeah, that's right. the idea for me is that if you can, we can control our emotions with clients. Yeah. And why is that? I mean, obviously it's a fiduciary thing, right? There's money involved. So we can do that. So maybe if you treat everyone online like they're your biggest client. <laughs> right. Right. As a, maybe the baby picture, if that doesn't work for you, treat them as your biggest client because right. no one treats their biggest client with disrespect. You're onto something there, Joey. You're onto something and you're plugging into a great moral tradition. The great moral philosophers have always uh, recommended various mental tricks to play on yourself. Yeah. Uh, like, what would Jesus do? What yeah. would my greatest, what would my mother think of this decision? What would my mentor say if he saw me doing this? What, how will I look at myself in the mirror tomorrow morning? Yeah. They've, invi- they've given you all kinds of little, little mind games to play to govern your conduct. And what you're saying is, Treat this person as if they were your most important client. Okay, yeah. how would I deal with this situation right now? You or know, a I baby. Might, yeah, <laughs> yeah, or like the, the baby. Thing. So baby. You, these yeah. are two alternatives that both could work, right? And yeah. and what you're doing is you're, it's like the Iliad and the Odyssey. You're taking people back to something that matters 
beyond their own ego. And yeah. so if you can, if you can bring people face to face with something they care about more than whether they are the winner of this discussion, right? If they care about something more, it can, it can even be just their <laughs> bottom line, right? Yeah. When it's something more than whether I win this argument. If they, you can remind them they care about something more than that, then that governs conduct, that moderates yeah. behavior, and that's important. I agree, and I think that's a piece. You asked the other day uh, on Facebook, you posted some, as you do it on a daily basis, but you posted a wonderful <clears throat> piece of prose, and then you offered up, who are today's public philosophers? Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, and, right. And I actually responded back, the brothers Weinstein. Uh-huh. And I don't know if you've heard of them, but I, I heard of them because of the Safe Space book again. Yeah. <clears throat> Brett Weinstein was one of the, <clears throat> excuse me, was one of the professors at Evergreen College. And for those of you who don't know, oh, right. Evergreen College is a very liberal university up in the Northwest. And they had kids, <clears throat> well, actually, I'll explain this this way. Brett Weinstein was a evolutionary biology professor, tenured. Well, I don't know if they have tenured at Evergreen, but he's established there and he's been there for many years. His wife, Heather was also there and I think voted the most popular, pro- most popular professor on the campus. So those two have been there for years. They lived in that area. They were very popular. They're part of the community. Really good people and high, obviously big thinkers. So at Evergreen College, they had something that stemmed from 1970s. It was called the Day of Absence. And the Day of Absence was based on a, uh, a black playwright in the, in the play the black people decided not to show up to the town one day to prove to people what their value was. And so to mirror this, this wonderful story, Evergreen decided that they would have their black population go out and do whatever they wanted to do as a day of absence at the university. And they could go and help a charity. They could do whatever they want. It was an excused absence, if you will. And it was a wonderful piece to the university's history. And in 2017, I think, they decided that they were going to exclude for the day white people. You could not come to the school, either faculty or student. And so Brett was like, man, that seems a little odd. And I think it's a little divisive. And he actually drafted a memo to the faculty. And it was, it was you know, very elegant in its arguments and its reasoning. And then he sent it. And then like, that eh, was enough. Didn't really think much of it. Somehow it got out. And there were kids all over the campus that stormed his classroom, said that he was a white patriarchy, uh, dominant white patriarchy. He's a misogynist. He's a, you know, all the name calling. And he, is, he needs to be removed. He needs to resign immediately. And they wouldn't let him teach. They were shouting and telling him to go fuck himself. And it was brutal. And so when I read that story, I was like, holy shit, this is ideology. And this is, this is what spawned this whole thing for me. It's like, I got to start understanding what this means as a liberal. Because I even made the, the concession that I might have gotten caught up in that if I was 18. And all my friends, all my new friends, you know, I just got high with and we played Frisbee and they're like, yeah, we got to go against the man. <laughs> well, in this case, it's Brett. And Brett yeah. happens to be a white patriarchy, you know, which is another whole discussion. But what really made me sick was that this, they uprooted this guy's life. Mm-hmm. They got to the point where they were st- they were stalking the parking lot with baseball bats looking for him to come to work. And then the police on campus were called off by the president of the university and said, 
do, do not do anything to these kids because we can't handle this, this blowback. And so they told Brett, we can't guarantee your safety anymore, sir. You can't come to the campus. So he resigned and his wife resigned. And since then, he started, I think it's the Dark Horse, or the Black Horse. I always screw this up. Black Horse or Dark Horse podcast. He has millions of followers. He has two-hour podcasts mm-hmm. on ideology, on science, on evolutionary biology, on politics, really complex topics that need long-form content. Mm-hmm. And then his brother, Eric, is the managing director of Peter Thiel Capital here in the Silicon Valley. He, much like his brother, is an academic. He went to UPenn, got his PhD from MIT in mathematics, and he's an incredible thinker. I mean, whether you agree with, I don't agree with everything he says, but I agree with a lot of what he says. And these two are having numerous debates online. And so check them out whenever you get a chance, buddy. But they're having these wonderful conversations. And there's other guys out there. Dave Rubin has a show called The Rubin Report. He used to be a liberal. He's a gay man who believes in pro-choice. So he has some liberal tendencies who's now leaning libertarian. So I don't agree with a lot of things he says, but he was outed by the left. They just attacked him viciously. And so he left the party and started his own show called The Rubin Report. Hmm. He has Eric on and he has Brett on and he has people like Jordan Peterson and, and Ben Shapiro and all of these folks, Joe Rogan. Like these are this like, and you've seen all the long form content online. And there's a name for it, which Eric Weinstein actually coined, I think, if my memory's correct, which is called the intellectual dark web. Oh, right. And I, yeah. I bring this up to you because this is a, a group of men and women. It's actually mostly men. Again, this is my brother points out. Most of these guys are men. You got to stop listening to men all the time. Like, all right, it's a good point. But they're having very long form content discussions around complex issues because they're complex. <laughs> you can't just like, this is it. Let's talk about this for six minutes and then we're done. And I bring these guys up for you and anyone who's listening to check these two out. These brothers are historically liberal, but they're pushing against the ideology of the left, which I think is really necessary. And I don't mean it just for the left. The right has to start doing this shit too, yeah. right? If you got to start, you got to, if you're a conservative, and you under and just a historical conservative, you you really can't rest on the Texas abortion bill. That you can't and on so many fronts. Just the way right. it was drafted, the way it was shoved down the throats, what it's doing to women, specifically women of you know people of color, poverty, the people that can't get out of the state to deal with anything to do with their biology. These do terrible things that the right needs to push back on. The left needs to push back on these you know these little brats that went and stormed uh, Brett's classroom and and the same little kids that stormed you know the berkeley campus it doesn't allow conservative thinkers to come and talk anymore because that's hate speech and i can't deal with it and you know it's funny though joey as you tell the story it occurred to me i wonder if you know the kids who went to the went to the weinstein classroom are they the same ones who want safe spaces and milk and cookies and, and coloring books? Or well, that, don't they realize yeah. that he might need that too? Or or was his classroom <laughs> not considered a safe space? Uh, and, and it's like, here's the complexity within uh, ideological movements that end up, you get contradictions, yes. right? And what you want for yourself. You become so not, far left, you become right. Yeah, what you want for yourself, you're not willing to accord to others, right? Yeah. And so you become, it's the opposite of, of most 
progressive tendencies to become autocratic, authoritarian, uh, to, to um, in, in, in a sense, you know, enforce uh, rules the way those students were trying to enforce those rules. So it is interesting to see how all that happens. And the very fact that you, you, you use this phrase intellectual dark web and, you know, you had a friend who said, why is it just mostly guys or almost all guys? <laughs> that's a kind of a question that's interesting to ask on its own, right? Uh, yeah. Why are women uh, choosing not to be involved as much as the guys choose to be involved in certain conversations and discussions? It's kind of an interesting sociological intellectual question unto itself, right? Because when I just think about it, you know a lot more about those conversations than I do. But when I just think about it in my own sort of remote spectator way, I don't, can't come up with names of of women who are doing that right now. Heather Cox Cox is a a journalist that I follow and she's fantastic. And and she is one of my favorite writers because she's an amazing thinker. And she talks about these things too, both sides. Ideology is poison and here's why. She's obviously, I think, liberal. At least Uh that's my understanding. But I think that that's, I I bring that up because there are factions of our culture that are starting to understand that this is untenable. Yeah, right. We have to start talking. And again, I love that you, you've named it, but if you can use mental mind tricks to deal with who you're talking with online, yeah. maybe yep. that's the simple mechanism, yep. you know, as opposed to getting into something epistemological yep. or anything else. It's like, yep. hey, let's just pretend that that person who posted a shitty meme right. is your biggest client. How would yep. you then post it back? Would you ignore it? Because that's a possibility. I have yeah. a hard time with that. So sometimes I'm like, oh, I can't. I, I, should, I shouldn't comment. But I'm like, oh, I can't. And so I do. But you could ignore it. That's a, that's a possibility, which is training yourself. You right. could then also broach the question, how do you know this? That's right. not, you're not being mean. You're just no. like, I don't, how do you know this? Is that true? I mean, that goes yeah. into Plato too. Is it true? Is it harmful? Is it beneficial? Right. Like, as, is the reason you're posting this do you understand why you? I mean, I don't care what you do, but you're at least getting to the point where either you look at their baby picture or you look at their financial issue if you fire them. Because well, you know, in, in both cases, you are appealing to a use of the imagination. Imagine this person as your customer, most important customer. Imagine this person as a little kid. Yeah. And the imagination. You know, Einstein once said, imagination is more important than knowledge. And that was my slogan for teaching at Notre Dame. I had on the, my door the famous Einstein poster with him with the crazy hair and that, that quote. Because imagination um, touches the emotions and it's the, the emotions that move the will. So that if you can, yeah. if you can educate someone into having a new, a novel use of imagination, because most of the people you will ever talk to have not online imagined uh, a, a discussion partner as their best client or right. as a little kid. If you can help them with a novel use of the imagination, you, you can help change emotions, which change behavior. Otherwise, reason gets you throw up an argument, an argument gets thrown back. It's like a tennis ball, right? An argument's like a tennis ball. You throw over one consideration, it's going to be hit right back to yeah. you. Are you going to hit back and hit back until somebody gets mad and walks away, or you both get too tired? But, you know, winning a game is not what we're up to here. Treating people well and making positive things happen is what you really want. So your thing about the imagination, and again, what I like about those two images is they're very different, 
but they both bring the heart back to values beyond yeah. what's being discussed. Yeah. And that's important to get people off that monorail that the train yeah. is running along. Yeah. How, how do you get it off that track? You got to appeal to something that really matters to people, values beyond their own ego. And that's kind of a magical formula, I think. It is. And, and I think that that's where the understanding then gets woven in. Because if, you can, if you're not attacking, right? There was a story shared by my Sifu, uh, my Kung Fu instructor. And he said that one of the best fighters ever was on a subway in New York City. And he was just sitting there after class and he was by himself and this really large man stormed onto the subway and he was rageful and he was yelling and screaming and he was scaring the hell out of people. And so, you know, when he started sharing the story, my first reaction was like, awesome, this guy's going to kick his ass because he's the best fighter in the world. And because he was so confident in his fighting ability, he had no fear. He knew he could take this guy down, but that's not what he did. He said, what is wrong? And he actually, he didn't move. He just, he was sitting on the bench and he patted his knee. And this really large, angry man sat down and laid his head on his lap and started crying and said that his wife is dying of cancer. Hmm. And he just got back from the hospital. And he doesn't know what to do. And he's, he's raging against the world. And this man stroked his hair and let him cry. And I have no idea if the story's true or not. But right. the idea behind it was like, oh my God. And I never, ever forgot that because... So, yeah, and, and that again... You then is understand. A, yeah, that, and that right? again is an example of what we're talking about. That story is so powerful because it gives you an image. An yeah. image that can change connect in your imagination. That can, the, and you say, you don't know whether it's true or not. Well, there's a sense in which, like all mythology, it has to be true because of the impact it has. And whether it's factually true or not is kind of beside it's the metaphorically point. true. <laughs> right, because right? look at the impact yes. uh, the story yes. has. And it also shows something else. People often turn to anger when they can't handle another emotion that is the more appropriate one for their circumstances. It can be hurt. It can be uncertainty. It can be frustration. And these things are too tough for a lot of people. So what they do is they turn it into anger because that's something that's cathartic, something they can get out by yelling or hitting or hurting, and they don't feel it's bottled up inside. I've known people who in marriages had that with a spouse. A spouse would get mad all the time, and there was really nothing to get mad over, but the person was going through something else that they couldn't endure. And so they turned it into anger because at least they could let it out, right? And so what the guy was doing... Uh, the experienced fighters, he was recognizing that there's probably something else going on here. Right. And if it can be given another outlet, then the rage will just vanish on its own, right? Yeah, and he saved the day in, in the exact opposite way that you would think. And right. any any good martial arts instructor will tell you that, you know, these are not, you don't learn these skills to use them unwisely. Right? These are, these you are learn dangerous. the skills to learn discipline. Do not use them. Yeah. Right? To use and discipline. You, you will use the discipline in ways you never anticipated. Correct. You know? uh, because like uh, Sun Tzu and all the stuff on military stuff, the, the, best, the best win uh, comes from avoiding the battle. Right. Exactly. Getting the outcome you want without the damage. Uh, 
and and so that's what that guy did. Uh, he knew there was another way, in a sense, kind of the easiest way, uh, the most obvious way, the way that everybody would have expected him, like you did, to be, to behave. But he yeah. used that same discipline that gave him those skills. He used that discipline in a new way, a better way. And but it was a discipline he wouldn't have had had he not uh, taken the time and effort to develop those other skills. So it's a great story on a lot of levels, I think. Well, so then we could just wrap this up by saying that we've solved the world's problems by framing it with a baby picture <laughs> or <laughs> or your largest client when it yeah. comes to debates. Yeah. Whether it's online or in person. And I think that that obviously I'm being a little bit humorous here, but I I, I think that that there is some hope for us because I don't think what I am finding out being a stay-at-home dad and spending as much time as I have with my little kids and meeting you over the last couple of years and, and reading a lot of books about kind of human behavior. And, and as you know, when I wrote my memoir, I wasn't pulling any punches about my own right. douchebaggery. I mean, it's in the right. title. The Life right. and Times of Recovering Douchebag was not to be funny. It was like I was a douchebag right. on many fronts. And I wrote that because I wanted to start with introspection, start with my own issues and say, I, I screwed this up. And yeah. And it's been a weird catharticism because once I published the book, I haven't had any thoughts about it. I haven't read it. I haven't touched it. I haven't looked at it mm-hmm. again because I was so sick of it after yeah. writing it for four years. But yeah. what it did is it took all my insecurities that I shared in story and then I gave it away to the public and now they own it, yeah. right? Yeah. It's like the readership owns it. I don't own it anymore and I felt lighter because of it. And I do believe that if we can use that same kind of methodology with our own belief systems, whether mm-hmm. they're political or religious or otherwise, is that it's lighter. It's a much yeah. lighter feeling to engage with someone online with compassion first, with the principle of charity, right? right? That's one of my favorite philosophical platforms is that if you, yeah. the principle of charity is that you just treat someone with the golden rule possibly and yeah, or like a absolutely. baby, right? It, absolutely. It's just be kind and, and, understand that they may be hurting at this point. Yeah. And you work you work as hard as you can. I had a professor, a really good Orthodox Jewish rabbi, philosophy of science professor, as an undergraduate, as a Hungarian guy, uh, who said to me, if you want to show that somebody's wrong, not necessarily show them, but you want to prove it to yourself, you first of all have to understand their position so well that you can yes. give it a better defense than they can. Give them a strong man argument. Yeah, right. right. You've got to yeah. give it a be- the best possible defense. Totally if you go that. after anything less than that, you've accomplished nothing. And in the process of trying to do that, you're going to come to a deeper understanding of why they believe what they believe. Yes. And you may end up realizing, like the guy on the subway, you don't have to fight a fight at all. You know, right. all you have to do is listen. Um, and that that has an alchemical effect, almost a transformative effect on people if they're listened to, like back to the guy with the KKK members that he yeah. recruited out of the Klan. The power of listening so that their anger, their hatred, their slogans melt away. They you do. haven't argued them out of anything, but you've no. helped them out. You're doing what Epictetus wanted to do when he he said he was a he, he had been a slave. And he said, but guess what? So are you. So are we all. We're all enslaved to something. I want to be 
your liberator. I want to help you free yourself from any false beliefs, any false values, any false commitments, any false emotions or attitudes. Philosophy was supposed to be about liberation. And and that's what I think you care about. That's what I care about. And that's what's going to help us to do good in the world. If we can free people from the things that are holding them back, whether they're ideological things or they're emotional things, then we've done some good in the world. Agreed. Be kind. <laughs> That's what my mommy always tells me. Pretty simple, isn't it? Be Pretty kind. Simple. Pretty simple. It really is. Well, <laughs> Professor, thank you so much. As you know, I, I always appreciate your time and wisdom. And, and uh, I know that you have a lot of things to read and do and finish Tolstoy. And, and uh, <laughs> But uh, thanks again. I really appreciate it. You're welcome, man. It's always good to talk to you, Joey. It's uh, We always come up with some new things, right? <laughs> or some new spins on some old things. And, and hopefully we help other people. In their That's own uh, in their own minds to get clear on some things that'll really matter and make their lives a little better. That's what we're trying here, man. Thanks a lot. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you dig what we're doing over here, please subscribe. And while you're at it, please download an episode or two and leave a review. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Until next time, big hugs. <laughs>